The reading for this morning is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nana. By the way, if you haven't, uh, if you have filled out one of these cards and answered the question, uh, would love to collect it. So if you could pass it to the middle and maybe wave it, maybe one of our uh, staff members can collect it for you. But thank you so much for your uh, input, your participation. Uh, we're continuing today in our Cross-Cultural Foundation sermon series, and we've been following sort of the four-chapter story of the Bible, uh, tracking with four different verbs, verb forms, verb tenses, ought, isn't, can, and will. And by that, what we mean is we're looking at the way that cross-cultural life ought to be according to God's design, bringing people together across difference in beautiful harmony in Christ. But then we secondly talked about the way that cross-cultural life, because of sin and the fall, isn't what it ought to be. Talked about that last week. Today we come upon the part of our series where we look at the possibilities that are opened up because of the grace and the power of the love of Christ. The way cross-cultural life can be, can be, because of the redemption of Jesus. Christ makes cross-cultural unity and the healing of relationships possible. And so let's pray together as we begin and as we ask for God's help. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time, and we pray for nothing less than an outpouring of your Holy Spirit. We need your help uh, to uh, pour out mercy from Christ upon our minds, upon our hearts, 
upon our lives, upon our relationships, our community, upon our neighborhood, our city, and even our world. We need you, O Christ. And so come near to us and speak to us by your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Stacy Marshall lives in Dirt Town Valley, a quiet rural town in northwest Georgia. After inheriting 300 acres of land, she's now in the process of learning how to run a cattle farm. She's also wrestling with whether or not she needs to give that farm away. You see, years ago, Stacy, who is white, found out that the family land that she now owns had been obtained in the 1830s by a lottery that handed out land exclusively to white people. Not only this, she also learned that years ago, generations ago, her family had purchased and enslaved seven African Americans. And now she feels moved, even compelled, by her faith in Christ to make some kind of amends. She doesn't know exactly what it ought to look like, but she describes it as a form of community repair. As she's done some soul searching and and practical brainstorming, she's leaned a lot on the Mosleys for spiritual mentorship and guidance. Melvin and Betty Mosleys are warm and longtime friends of Stacy's. Both of them are old enough, actually, to be her parents. In fact, Mr. Mosley is Stacy's dad's best friend. And when she was in high school, he was her assistant principal. Now he's a pastor of a church named Harmony Baptist Church. She's asked for much advice from them, what to do, how to think about reconciliation in their community, how to approach hard conversations that aren't always welcomed, but that she feels need to be had. Mr. Mosley, in one of those early conversations, said, in all our families, black or white, there are some generational things that are up to us to break. He prayed over her. One of the first words of advice that he ever gave her was, you're going to see a side of people you haven't seen. It's true. It hasn't been easy. After all, She's trying to lead community discussions about race. She's sharing her story, personal family story, in a place, a small town in the Deep South, where not long ago a Confederate flag was still flying over the courthouse, until only recently. But she persists, and so do the Mosleys together with her. And then one day, things took a turn for the more awkward and more painful. Two years ago, they found out that Betty Mosley's great-great-grandmother, the great-great-grandmother of this dear friend, neighbor, and mother figure in Stacy's life, was actually enslaved by Stacy's great-great-great-grandparents over 150 years ago. Close friends, now connected by a terrible, tragic, and painful past. It was shocking, Mrs. Mosley confessed in a recent interview, this stunning revelation. 
Of course, most of their black neighbors had roots in slavery and sharecropping in that town, but this hit close to home, too close. And one of the first things that she did, according to the story that I read, was to call Stacy to tell her, I just want you to know that this doesn't change the way I love you. But they did share tears. They've shared many conversations. Even as they partnered together in that local community to find ways to bring people along in a similar path of healing. Stacy has said, it's a gift from the Lord to walk through this relationally, to not ignore it or be in bondage to it. The Mosleys and I keep our own relationship rooted in what our strongest bond is. And she is, of course, referring to Jesus. She talks openly about things that she's learned along the way. She said, as white people, we get to choose whenever we have this conversation, but the Mosleys never had a choice. She's also observed, I'm learning to be misunderstood it's okay if people don't understand my motives. And at the end of the day, the healing continues. It's a hard road and a joyful road, full of tears, laughter, and deepened friendship. Mrs. Marshall reflects, we could not have written this story. It feels miraculous. Because you know it is miraculous to be able to walk through that kind of pain those kinds of histories, bonded by a deeper bond and yet no less threatened by deep wounds, histories, a past that continues to haunt them, that continues to invite conversation and a process of healing. The goal here of sharing this is not just to put out there another sensationalistic story, or a feel-good story. In fact, it's a very complicated story. And it's certainly not to convey, even indirectly, that this kind of work is relevant only to people whose ancestors were enslavers themselves. But rather, it's just to show one example, a complex example, of someone that's wrestling with a healing process, trying to respond in all the ways that the Bible calls Christ's followers to respond to our racial brokenness. You see, because if we are in the presence of racial sin, racist ideas, then the Bible says we must repent of such sin, recant of such untruth. If we find ourselves in the presence of injustice, well, the prophets couldn't be clear. We must correct oppression. We must break the yoke of injustice. If we find ourselves in the presence of theft, both today's and yesterday's, then the Bible calls us in the face of such racial theft to practice restitution, to give back that which has been sinfully stolen, making amends, reparation. And today's focus is simply this. When we see relationships wrecked, not just by difference, but by sinful hostility or even hostile indifference. What we're called to is what the Bible calls reconciliation. We see that language used in today's passage. Our passage, which comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, where he's writing to Christians in Ephesus, 
That's a city, a pretty cosmopolitan, bustling city that was located in Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey in the Mediterranean region. This was a group of Christians, a church, that was mostly Gentile, non-Jewish. People who were of primarily Greek and Roman cultural influence. And yet they worshipped a Jewish Messiah. They had come to know Christ as their Savior, their Redeemer, their God. And they've now been brought into a faith that was previously Jewish only. And here in chapter 2 of Paul's letter, he's seeking to reassure these Gentile believers that they are not second class in the kingdom of God. They are not forgotten people or afterthoughts in Christ's family. Rather, they are full-fledged, beloved members of God's people. And so are you. Here he makes two different and yet intimately related points that we can summarize with these two phrases. Number one, redemptive inclusion. And then secondly, radical reconciliation. Redemptive inclusion, radical reconciliation. Let's take that first one. Redemptive inclusion. Verse 11 opens with the Apostle Paul telling the Ephesians to remember. He says, remember the time of the Old Testament, long before the coming of Christ. You might have noticed the language there. He says, formerly, formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, remember at that time, before. What about that time before? What about the Old Testament period? What about that former period? Well, he says four things. Number one, you were separate from Christ. Number two, you were excluded from citizenship in God's kingdom in Israel. Thirdly, you were foreigners to the covenants of promise. And fourthly, you were without hope and without God in the world. You were separate, excluded, foreigners, and hopeless. And this is what he's referring to. You may or may not know that God in the Bible chose Israel And he set them apart as his holy and distinct special people. And he preserved their identity as his special people by putting upon them strict dietary laws, what you could and could not eat, and also rituals like circumcision that marked them out as God's people. And so as you can imagine, naturally, these rituals, these food laws, created a distance between God's people, the Jewish people, and Gentiles, non-Jewish people. It created a boundary that was hard to cross. In fact, it made it nearly impossible for Jews and Gentiles to be in regular, intimate relationship with each other. I mean, literally, you couldn't even share meals together on an intimate, regular basis. So relationships were not just distant, they were divided. There were exceptions, of course. In the Old Testament, Caleb was a Kenizzite. Rahab was a Canaanite. Ruth, the grandmother of King David, was a Moabite. 
There were exceptions, but generally speaking, Gentiles were outsiders to God's people and God's salvation in the Old Testament. And as Paul puts it in verses 11 and 12 of our passage, formerly Gentiles like the Ephesians were separate, excluded foreigners and ultimately hopeless. That was then, but this is now. And this is what Paul says in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Brought near to God and brought near to God's people. How? We're told in verse 15 that Christ set aside, he abolished all those ceremonial laws and rituals and regulations that created that distance between Jewish people and Gentiles. So now, for example, what you eat could no longer exclude you from the covenant community and your opportunity to come to know God. You can eat anything, and you can eat now with anyone, you see. A new kind of possibility of unity was forged. This was an absolutely shocking development among God's people. People of every culture and ethnicity finally were in. I mean, friends, we almost take this for granted because you've heard it much if you've been in the church or if you've lived and grown up in the West that has been so shaped by these egalitarian, inclusive values. Even if you're not a religious person, you almost take it for granted that this is how it ought to be. It never was this way anywhere in the world until God said it must be. People of every culture and ethnicity being brought together as one. And here Paul is reminding these dear Gentiles that Christ made it so. Now in Christ, Gentiles who were once separate and now joined to Christ. Gentiles who were once excluded are now included. Gentiles who were once foreigners are now spiritual family members. Gentiles who were hopeless now have hope in Christ. It's so astonishing that earlier in chapter, or later in chapter 3 of Ephesians, Paul will call it the mystery of the gospel that has now been revealed. We, we thought that this wonderful news of salvation might be only for, or predominantly for, the people of Israel, people of Jewish descent, but wow, God has just exploded the possibilities of who he wants his grace to chase after, even to the ends of the earth. God has thrown the gates wide open. He's expanded once for all the horizon of redemptive inclusion. And so Paul is writing to these Gentile Ephesian Christians, these ethnic minorities in the early days of Christianity. And in this part of Ephesians, he's going out of his way to reassure them of this. And this is what he's driving to. This is his main conclusion here at verse 19. Consequently, 
you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, verse 22, and in Christ you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In other words, you, minority member in God's house, you are citizens of God's kingdom. You are members of God's family. You are the very house of God, his temple, wherein the spirit of God dwells. And no one had ever heard anything like this before. So what does this mean for our efforts today to build a cross-cultural community? First of all, if you are an ethnic minority, a cultural outsider in Christ's church, listen, don't let anybody treat you like a second-class citizen. Don't treat yourself like a second-class citizen or a foreigner or stranger in God's family. You are a full-fledged member of God's family and his kingdom. Don't miss this. I know this is a common passage. We've preached on it before in this room. But the purpose of these verses primarily isn't just to urge Christians generally to get along. If you pay attention to the argument, it's actually to reassure ethnic outsiders that they belong. And so it leads us to questions like this. Are there ways that we, our churches, our communities, our friend groups, our homes, are there ways that we do, even unintentionally, make ethnic minorities in the church feel like foreigners, strangers, or even guests in their own spiritual home? I think I've shared this story before, but a couple of years ago, Paula and I, where were the kids? This might have been before we had kids, but we were visiting a church somewhere out of town, as we will when we're taking time away. And as newcomers of this church, we're greeting different people and meeting them and shaking hands and all the rest, sometimes being asked a little bit about our background and sometimes not. In one moment, I was quickly greeted by an older gentleman who happened to be white, it seemed like he had been in that church for a long, long time. And pretty much after seeing us and maybe catching our name, but not much more about us, he launched into a warm invitation. Hey, could you please come to our missions night coming up and pray for us in Korean? Could you share a, a, a Korean prayer for us that would really bless us if you could do so? You see, I know he meant well. I know he actually had a commitment and desire for that mission's prayer time to reflect some of the diversity of the kingdom. I understand that impulse. But in doing so, even with the best of intentions, with a brand new visitor of the church, it was hard not to think 
that as he came upon us, once again, we who grew up here, were born here, and lived here, and really couldn't really pray well in Korean anyway, (laughs) when he first saw us, he saw global missions. Maybe a little example of what it can be like, yes, even with the best of intentions, to treat somebody like a stranger, even literally like a foreigner. To see them, yes, as a blessing to the community, but almost like a trinket to be put on display. The ways in which somebody that is an image bearer or even a sister or brother in a community might be looked upon and essentially exotified. Yes, treated as special, but in a way that actually doesn't honor who they are but flattens who they are. Again, I want to emphasize, he meant well. A lot of us do mean well. We're growing. We're learning. How can we do better? How can we help people in our community to feel like they actually really do belong? Last week, I told the story of an elephant who was looking for a new apartment in a house that was owned by, designed by, lived in by a giraffe. The giraffe was warm and kind, but as the elephant started looking around this new prospective apartment and this new roommate quickly discovered that the house was completely built and designed for a giraffe. Narrow doorways, bright brown-orange spots on the walls, the TV 40 feet high in the air, a refrigerator only full of leaves that a giraffe would love all these things despite the giraffe reassuring the elephant I'm so glad you're here we're going to be like family we can really do this together the elephant coming away feeling like a foreigner and a stranger even in his own apartment again regardless of best intentions what could it mean in that little example for this elephant To truly welcome, not just with words, but in patterns of behavior, in actions. To bring this elephant in. This this giraffe, uh, sorry, the giraffe, to bring this elephant in. What could that look like? Well, it might actually look something like widening the doorway. Making room for this elephant to be able to pass through. So that his first experience of that apartment is, this place was made with me in mind. Do you know that's a goal of cross-cultural community? That people will come in and experience the church and through the details of the liturgy, the life of relationships, the way in which worship and faith is practiced and embodied, people come away saying, this place was designed with a little bit of me in mind. Widen the doorway. Fill the fridge with hay. Because so often we say, well, you can eat anything in this house without actually giving the person, the newcomer, the power to fill that fridge with foods from their own taste. Lower the TV height. Put elephant prints on the wall. Mix it up a little bit. You see, because what we're actually talking about is not just two roommates, but an elephant coming into a house, a group house of ten giraffes. How can those giraffes, that existing community of giraffes, make the community more of a reflection 
of what those elephants bring to the community, to the apartment. And so what can this look like? There are little stretches, little things that we can do, what we try to do. Some of it you hear in our music, where we try to draw from traditions in the black church, gospel music, and so on. The way in which we sing in other languages at time. We heard that in today's song. Another song, Father of Lights, that we love to sing. Where right from the beginning, different translations of we thank you, Father, our Son. Shukran ya Baba. Te damos gracias, Papa. Kamsaheyo Abaji in Korean. All these different languages. And those can themselves be tokenized, of course. But instead, what is that? That's, that's an elephant print on the wall. That's a, a sign and a signal to say, when you are here, if you're someone that speaks a different language, you're not a stranger here. We know you're here. We love that you're here. We want you to be a part of this family. Years ago, while Paula and I were sorting through our relationship and sort of turning the corner into marriage, there was some stuff with our family that we had to work out. And so I was looking for counsel, uh, advice from different people across the church. Again, this is years ago, not in this particular community. And some of the people that I talked to who weren't familiar with Korean culture gave very well-intended advice and clear advice where they said, look, your parents may have one opinion about this or that, but you're an independent man. You need to make a decision on your own. You, you need to leave and cleave, right? So citing scripture and saying, this is what you need to do. This is your decision. You just need to go. And it was after some time that I was finally able to sort of sort through it and, and understand the feelings of tension that I felt, knowing how much that really conflicted with the way that I knew at least my parents, if not myself, thought of what an even adult child's relationship with their parents is like. I'm not saying it wasn't a struggle, but I was saying the simplistic, simple advice of, yo, you're just an independent person, you got to make your own decisions, was not actually sensitive enough to the cross-cultural dynamics that were in play for a young second-generation Korean-American trying to figure out how to handle parents in the midst of relational questions. What does the church need? People with that cross-cultural training. Counselors who understand that there are complexities when you are working across people in places of difference. You see, we're not just talking about music. We're talking about relational ministry. We're talking about how we teach and preach. We're talking about our liturgy. We're talking about how we pray, how we do our life groups, our small groups, how we do our fun and our leisure. I was talking to someone recently about how they had been in a Christian small group for years and years and years, and yet they always felt a little bit like an outsider because they had no idea what people were talking about. And this is a person that actually grew up here but all their jokes and their cultural references seemed like they were from a completely different world. What would it look like for even our small group conversations to grow in sensitivity so that you learn to recognize that there's likely in the room a person that does not share that same experience? Where you don't make it awkward and be like, well, you, you must be different. Not like that. But where you're regularly saying 
and assuming that there are people that don't share that, maybe even consensus experience, and you learn to say, hey, does anyone else have a different experience? You learn to ask, hey, does anyone feel differently? You don't assume homogeneity. You assume difference and diversity. Because we are a church, as Paul in God's word shows us to be, one that is learning to take people that in the watching world are treated as foreigners and strangers and learning to treat them truly as family and as one people. It's important for us to remember as we do this that it's an uncomfortable process, isn't it? It's hard. It's not easy. Right? But the whole call of cross-cultural love is for every single one of us to embrace a little bit of discomfort for the comfort of others. To say, hey, I, I, I will make it awkward for me so that it's not so awkward for you. I, I will make it maybe harder on me. I will bear that burden so that you can be a little bit more free, so that you can feel a little bit more like beloved family. What can that look like here? as we live out redemptive inclusion. But that's not all that Paul says us here in this passage. He talks about redemptive inclusion. He also talks about radical reconciliation. And we'll take this more quickly. Radical reconciliation. And I say radical because Ephesians 2 presents to us a reconciliation, a healing of wounds and hostility in our relationships, a reconciliation that drills down deep, that gets to the root of things. In fact, as we'll talk about in a second, this passage reminds us that reconciliation is actually an impossible task apart from the power of Jesus. And I call this radical reconciliation because too often the church has settled for a superficial reconciliation. A superficial reconciliation that involves surface harmony and peace. Just, just getting along, no ruffled feathers. A superficial reconciliation that involves very little true repentance or lament for past sins or harms. A superficial reconciliation insists that we just move on from the past. Uh, let's not talk about those things. Let bygones be bygones. Super recon superficial reconciliation is, is blind to corporate sins or structural evils, and too often superficial reconciliation is pursued only as long as white Christians aren't made to feel too uncomfortable. Paul calls us to, to something far deeper, to something far more lasting, to something far more rewarding, I promise you, something far more joyful, something far more glorifying to Jesus. Something deep that gets to the heart of it all, something that required the slaughter of the Son of God. What is it? Well, there are a couple features of it. This is a reconciliation that names a clear problem. What's the problem? It's that there's hostility that's shared between groups. We see this language again and again in this passage. Verse 14, Christ himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. 
And again in verse 16, he put to death their hostility. Because there's so much pain, friction, that's often experienced in the course of intercultural relationships, the way we rub up against each other, the way that we bear the pains of our families past. You see, we're not just talking about a transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament and, hey, come on in. The Jews and the Gentiles of Jesus' day, of Paul's day, were nearly mortal enemies. They would not interact, not just because the Old Testament law wouldn't enable it, but because they hated each other, because pride had puffed up the minds and hearts of the Jewish people, of God's people in Israel, to say it's not just that we're different, but we're superior, and of Gentiles turning around and reciprocating the same. And to be clear, this hostility was not just individual, it was communal and historical, just like interracial hostilities are today. And to be clear, even us, we have not only personal wounds, even long-term wounds, but wounds that come from communities of whole peoples that have been wounded. We are a whole bag of hostilities and wounds and hurts. For myself, the first time a racial slur was used against me was by a little white boy. In the seventh grade, I was repeatedly harassed by the Mexican boys in the locker room. Here in D.C., most of the verbal racism that I and my family receive is from African Americans. So I'm mad at all y'all, right? No, I, what it means is that I've had a lot of reconciliation work to do in my life, and I suspect that you do, too. The good news, of course, is that Paul gives us in these words not only an identification of the problem, but he gives us a power, spiritual power. What does he say? There is a wall, a dividing wall of hostility that keeps us one from another, Sometimes you can almost feel it. Sometimes you can almost see it. And it's thick. And it's hard. But we're told, Christ himself has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He has created in himself Verse 15, one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So what does this mean? Does this mean, as many people try to make this passage mean, that we're just magically reconciled, so stop your moaning, we're one. Ta-da! No, what he's saying is Jesus accomplished on the cross everything that was necessary to make reconciliation here and now possible. Because by his death, the moral and spiritual grounds for racial hostility have been 
obliterated. And moral and spiritual power for reconciliation is now being made available. In other words, he died, and in dying, he abolished all these laws and rituals that made one people feel superior to another. Not by God's design, but the way that they started interacting with these laws. Oh, those dirty people over there. Oh, these people that are far from God and we need to stay away from them as much as possible. The way that pride inflated things and made it an ugly, corrosive hostility. Jesus broke those laws, obliterated them, destroyed them, the Apostle Paul says, and therefore removed the spiritual moral grounds for feeling like I'm better than you, I'm different from you in a way that even God agrees about, and therefore you need to stay out, foreigner, stranger, filth. And when Jesus died on the cross, he died in a way where he said you are one who now has access to God as a sinner, not by the works that you do, not by the good things that you do and the bad things that you avoid, but rather by my grace. It doesn't matter who you are, what your family is, what you have done, what you have failed to do. You are loved and accepted by God by grace, which humbles everyone. Because this is what Romans chapter 3 says. All have sinned. Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. We've all sinned. We're all condemned before God. But by grace, we can all be saved, Jew and Gentile alike. That is the gospel. And when that's true, it begins to give us spiritual resources to say, hey, for all our differences, fundamentally, we're more the same. Sinners saved by grace. So in this, Christ and his death has given us everything we need spiritually in order to actually be reconciled one to another. That's the power that Jesus gives us, that he's accomplished for us, but now we need to put it into practice. We need to live out that reconciliation that Christ has achieved for us and now offers to us. What does that practice of reconciliation look like? I want to offer to you a, a quick definition, a, a, a quick sentence trying to pull together. It's not perfect, but a sentence that pulls together different aspects of what I think the Bible means by the reconciliation of peoples one to another. Here we go. Reconciliation is this, an ongoing spiritual process in which the disclosure of racial hurt is met with empathy, lament, and if needed, repentance, and in return, forgiveness and forbearance, as needed, moving towards the incremental building of trust and the establishment of equal standing in Christ. That's a long sentence, but let me unpack it for you. Number one, reconciliation is not just a moment. It's not just a one-time event. Hey, we're reconciled. Hey, we're fine. Never have to talk about things again. As most severed relationships go, whether personal or historical, reconciliation is a process. Something that you need to come back to again and again 
And again, and that includes, of course, the inner work of our own hearts as well, dismantling racist pride or dismantling suspicion of different people or dismantling the resentment and bitterness that can well up in our hearts and stay there calcifying our souls. It's an ongoing spiritual process in which the disclosure of racial injury, of racial hurt, right? So that might mean, hey, you have sinned against me. We need to talk about this. That might mean my community was sinned against, or it might just be it's really hard. I'm not talking about sin. I'm just talking about hurt. I'm talking about burdens, right? So there's a disclosure in opening up a revealing of racial injury that might be personal. It might be communal, corporate. It might be present, This just happened right now. It might be past and historical. But that disclosure is what? Met with empathy, especially through really good listening, through lament, and through repentance. Individual repentance, corporate repentance when needed, but especially lament as we talked about last week. I am so sorry that it hurts that bad. Can I bear this burden with you? And in return, forbearance and forgiveness offered. Again, this is a process. Forgiveness, if there's specific sin that was committed, Christ calls us to forgive. And I want to say Today, the world will not tell you, our culture today will not tell you that forgiveness is a gospel obligation, and it is. It just might take longer than we think. It might be more complicated than when we assumed. But Christ gives us grace and a command to move towards forgiveness when we've been hurt. And if not forgiveness, if it's just hurt, burdens, it's just hard, I'm weary, I'm exhausted for that person, once lament and care has been offered, then to just keep forbearing with this person, this this counterpart to say, hey, let's do this together. I'm not bailing out. We're going to figure this out together. And together you're moving towards the incremental building of trust. And I want to point this out. The goal of reconciliation is not to make it all go away. The goal of reconciliation is not just peace that makes us feel better about it so we can click our heels and be on our way. The goal of the process of reconciliation is to build trust, little by little by little. Because that's really what we're after, just these little moments when you actually dare to share a hurt and someone actually weeps with you. You start to feel seen and known and loved in a way that makes you feel a little safer in that relationship, makes you feel a little bit more courageous in being willing to step back into that relationship. But again, it's a process that takes time. Last week I shared about how last year I went through a a period, we went through a period together with our kids of just repeated uh, again and again racial harm and hurt that was occurring in the classroom. And I shared this with a couple of friends and it meant so so much of me, to, to me, to have certain friends text back, not just acknowledgement of what I shared and what was going on, but a friend that said, that that makes me so furious, all caps, (laughs) furious for you guys. And and he actually started cussing over his text message, right? You know, just trying to express that. That made me feel loved, in fact. 
someone that could hate sin and love those that are being wounded. And another friend who, who also wrote this reading, reading this brought me to tears. I hate this for you. And then reassured me that he's praying for us, for our children in detail and by name. And it also helped me to hear from one African-American friend, a fellow pastor, who said, listen, I've got my own story, but there are things that are unique to yours as an Asian-American, things that I won't be able to understand, but I'm here for you. And that meant a lot to hear as well. I would say each of those exchanges were so important for what? Did we, were friends, did we need, were we enemies that needed, no, but it was still a process of reconciliation, a deepening of trust that came through rich empathy, weeping together in a sense that we are in this as one. That's what reconciliation looks like as individuals, as communities, as whole peoples, and this is what the apostle says he, Christ gives us power to do. I want to make sure we end on this note. Christ doesn't just offer to give us power. He actually has accomplished this goal by his power. Christ has broken down spiritually the dividing walls of hostility that separate us from one another. Now, we're still figuring it out, fumbling along our way, not always doing a good job about it, hurting each other, right? Stomping on the work of Christ, but listen... Christ has actually done all that we need in order to grow as brothers and sisters in a united family, in order to grow as fellow citizens in God's kingdom, in order to grow together as a united temple, that dwelling place of God himself here on this earth. Jesus has done it. So I know you might be discouraged. I know you might be nervous. I know even talking about this topic might make you reel back a little bit, but friends, everything necessary that needed to be done to make this a reality has been done. Now let's do it. Put it into practice. Live it and live in light of the glorious work of Christ himself who shed his blood for you and me. Cross-cultural Life together is a can because of Christ. It's possible because of Christ. And so we do it for the glory of Christ. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your wisdom. And we ask that you would come and, and give us your spirit that we can sort through how to do this in our individual lives, in our in our communities, our small groups, our church, and how it is that we can live out redemptive inclusion, how it is we can live out radical reconciliation. Give us grace and do this for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.